Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks to have a meaningful conversation about the important issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview guests from all over the country who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. Those who farm it, catch it, sell it, innovate it, protect it for future generations, and make it delicious on your plate. I'm so excited to have one of my culinary heroes on the show today. He has worn many hats over the years, including as a nationally acclaimed chef, a fishmonger, a world traveler, cookbook author, father, husband, catalyst for the bycatch movement, and the definitive expert on Texas seafood. Mr. PJ Stoops, thanks for joining us from Houston, PJ. Thanks for having me. Well, I really appreciate you joining us, and I have a number of topics that I want to cover, but mostly this is just going to be a free-flowing conversation, so feel free to, to, uh, to riff on any of these topics or add in anything that you want. Um, first, I, I wanted to plug the book right off the bat. Um, you have a, a fairly new cookbook out called Texas Seafood, uh, a cookbook and comprehensive guide. Will you give us a little bit of a primer on the book? Sure. <clears throat> the book was, um, well, to, to begin with, consciously modeled on the, uh, the seafood books of Alan Davidson. Um, and that we there was obviously nothing for the Gulf of Mexico that he had covered. And uh, it seemed that over the years, uh, Apple, my wife and I had eaten uh, enough animals to, uh, well, to, f- to fill a book. So we did it. Um, so the beginning of the book is essentially a description of, well, altogether maybe 250 kinds of edible critters in the northwestern Gulf of Mexico. And then uh, the back part of the book is hopefully everything to guide you from uh, knowing where to buy your fish to cutting it up and cooking it. Well, I've read the book and it is incredible. Uh, It is an incredible uh, collection. Uh, and it very much is, it speaks to the ethic that you're really well known for, your wife as well, of kind of kicking off the bycatch movement um, and, and is really an ode to that. You talk a little bit about what motivated you to highlight all of these species that people often think of as trash? Sure. Um, <clears throat> partially a, uh, a desperate bid to make money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there. I, I I kind of fell into to fishmongering and I had kind of no business doing it and I didn't know what I was doing and I did it in all the wrong ways and made every wrong decision I could have made. Um, but I, I did have success at getting chefs interested in local seafood in the beginning. Uh, the, the problem was that most of the most of the Gulf or Texas seafood, let's say available to chefs and this was in Austin in 2007. Uh, it was it was red snapper, uh, maybe a couple of other kinds of snapper, flounder, black drum, and that was more or less it as far as products, fish that could be counted on from from Texas waters. Um, so of course, when I started trying to sell fish, and I finally found out where the fish was being unloaded, and I went to those docks, it was imp- I, there was no way to make money on things like red snapper. If that's the commodity fish, uh, there's not a whole lot of room for a, a small vendor who deals in hundreds rather than thousands of pounds. So um, I saw that they occasionally unloaded other fish. And I those fish, some of them I was familiar with uh, because I've been 
been lucky enough to see fish from other parts of the world. Uh, and some of them I knew from books because uh, that's kind of how I've always learned about things is I read a lot of books. And um, I knew some of the, a lot of these fish existed. I didn't know. And I assumed because I'm, I, I was naive um, that all these fish were marketed, that all these fish were normally caught, that, that the Texas seafood market was diverse in the number of species because we're used to seeing that image kind of uh, when you see seafood markets in Boston or New York, uh, San Francisco, that there's a variety of species being landed from local waters. And so we've all, we, 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 I assumed that was the same uh, situation in Texas and it's not. So uh, I started buying those fish that I saw that were normally not worth as much money at the dock. Um, fishermen generally called them trash and that, that wasn't necessarily, they didn't mean they were trash. Like you couldn't eat them. They, they meant that simply in terms of like economics, that's it. There was no judgment on what the fish was. Maybe the, the edible value of the fish. It was, is the fish worth money? And if it is not, it is trash. And so, um, I became the trash man and, uh, I started buying those fish and I realized what some of them were and some of them, like, for example, the, uh, the Almaco Jack, uh, that is, that swims all throughout the Gulf and basically all throughout warm oceans of the world. You know, that's a ja fancy Japanese fish called Kampachi. And that's a real easy example. Um, but I started seeing that, that, uh, barrel fish was damn near the same thing as a blue nose from Australia that the, uh, the pink porgy was so close to the Thai snapper that is used in, in sushi restaurants. Uh, and again, the fish weren't, they, 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 they weren't expensive and I could make enough of a margin selling them to the chefs. And it turns out that there was no commerce in these fish and no one really was bringing them to market. So I did that in Austin for about a year and a half. And then, uh, I realized that Houston was a bigger market and it was a lot closer to the coast. So talking about where the, all of the, these fish come from that people were unfamiliar with, one of the <clears throat> sections of the book, you you describe the process of bay and offshore shrimping um, and, and, the, and trawling for white shrimp, for example. So if, there's, if there is a shrimp boat off of the coast of Texas targeting white shrimp and they haul in that net, how much of that is going to be shrimp? how much of that is going to be other species and what are you going to find in that net that, that a younger PJ would, would scoop up and take to a restaurant? <laughs> sure. Well, let me, let me be clear in the beginning that, um, that what, what I became known for as far as bycatch was, uh, you know, no offense to anyone involved, but those were the easy fish. Um, th those were the, the fish that everyone could could equate with, that or could equate with other other fish that they knew, the the shrimp bycatch, and and I'm sorry to backtrack a moment on those kind of boats that was coming from red snapper boats, vermilion snapper boats, grouper boats, uh, and then tuna and swordfish boats. Those were the boats that I would get that kind of bycatch off. Not all of it was easily marketable, but most of it was. That but the bycatch on those kind of boats is is relatively low is, is very low um, relative to for example shrimping with shrimping it's a whole different kettle of fish so to speak um, those the bycatch there is 
that I never had any luck marketing. Uh, that was like the big failure that on, on, well, it was a failure. I'm not sure on whose part it was, but it was a failure because they're, they're not glamorous fish. They're not, they're not animals that are necessarily very easy to use for most chefs. They're quite honestly not fish that, or seafood products that most chefs are comfortable with. Uh, most chefs don't know how to process them. Most chefs don't know how to use them. Uh, and that's all there is to it. Anything can be introduced to the end user uh, and dining and, and, and customers at, at those kinds of restaurants, at the restaurants that, that I used to sell to, they tended to be adventurous enough to try things if uh, presented the right way. But the, the, the bottleneck was that that stuff's really foreign and unknown. So uh, to give you an example and to kind of go back to your question, uh, I would have to check the latest kind of reports from uh, from NOAA, National Marine Fisheries, whomever it is that that, that uh, would, would keep track of this. Um, last time I read about it a few years ago, it was, uh, 16% of the catch is on average shrimp. So in other words, 86%, 84%, something like that, whatever that number is, is, uh, by catch. Now that that's not to, I, I don't want that to be like a blanket statement on the industry because it depends on how you shrimp and where you shrimp and how diligent you are and your practices that, that number can be significantly better. Uh, but, but on average that, that is, again, that's the, uh, that's the number given by scientists who, uh, who would know. And so the, what kind of species it is, it's again, going back to that, that same research, I believe there's as many as 50 plus species of animals. That's everything from various kinds of snails to other kinds of shrimp to various kinds of crabs to uh, a hell of a lot of juvenile fish, uh, croakers, for example, on white white shrimp boats, um, juveniles of all of all sorts, but but especially things like croakers, small species of fish. Uh, so like your uh, your your very very small flat fish, like a, a tongue fish in a bay with, those will get caught up. But those are those are tiny flat fish, like big, as big as your hand kind of flat fish. So they're all, they're all more difficult to use and they, and you can't fault chefs for not being able to use them on the other hand, because a lot of them are labor intensive. Um, but the thing is, there's something to be done with all of it. And there's something to be done to mitigate the, the worst of those bycatch rates. Yeah. And for any of the listeners out there who are unclear about what we mean when we say bycatch, it's basically any of the incidental catch that that comes up in the fishing process that was not the targeted species. So, um, which unfortunately, uh, depending on the gear you're using, uh, you may have a really high percentage, like you just said, you know, something in the 80 plus percentile, or if you're rod and reel fishing, you are going to have a lot less, a lot less bycatch, but still you're going to end up with some. Sure. And, and you figured out a really innovative way to, to move, that product. Can, can you talk a little bit about the process of convincing chefs and consumers <laughs> to, to start to take a look at those species? Sure. Well, I guess it would, uh, I did sell retail direct to consumer, um, on and off over the years in kind of various venues. Um, but convincing those customers was much easier because those were the same people that generally went to the restaurants that I was already selling to. So it was more of a, a matter of convincing chefs. 
And, uh, oh, I love chefs. I, I really do. But all you got to do to get a chef interested in something is kind of act like everybody else already knows about it. And then, uh, then they're going to act interested and they're going to want to see what, you know, see, see more about it. And so that was it. And it's, and I, I say that kind of jokingly, but, but on the other hand, you kind of, you go from there and say, oh, well, it's just, you make it commonplace is what I'm saying. So, um, the, uh, the Almaco Jack again is, is like a real easy example. And that was like a real early, early success story was, was that fish, uh, which up until then was generally not even marketed under its kind of accepted common name. It was just marketed as a bar jack, which as far as I'm aware, it's not. Um, and so again, calling it Almaco Jack, well, that's that sounds, maybe that's tasty, maybe it's not. But again, call it Kampachi, and everyone knows about Kampachi, and every chef's heard of Kampachi. Uh, there was a lot of that that was real easy. There was, there was scorpion fish, for example. I mean, you, there, there's not a whole lot you have to do to sell scorpion fish once you kind of point out where else in the world it's used. And that was the key in a lot of things. I, I'd seen the, the Mediterranean ha or the, the Western Mediterranean, well, both sides, I guess. But I, 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 I used to work uh, 20, 26, 30 kilometers from the Western the Mediterranean. And uh, the fish that I saw in France then, whether they're, sometimes they're the same exact species, but they're a lot of the same cousins. They're not the same bodies of water, but they, they, uh, they share enough kind of proximity and, and characteristics that, um, there, there are a lot of the same things. And that's all you had to do was point it out. A lot of the fish in the, in the Gulf that were bycatch are used in Japan for various reasons. Maybe not all sushi, but, uh, but certainly for, for consumption. Let's say there's a, a little species of barracuda called the guaguanche. And it's a, again, it's a small, it's a barracuda. That's exactly what it is, but it's, it's a small species. And it has a cousin called the, the Northern Senate, I believe. Uh, they, they don't just get very big. I mean, maybe, I don't know. The biggest one I ever saw was maybe two pounds, three pounds, but that's, that's very large. Uh, chefs might not have been interested in just a barracuda because of what we think of when we think of barracuda and edibility. But that a very close relative of that fish is the, uh, I believe it's kamasu in, in Japan, which uh, I've, I've enjoyed kamasu at, at Katarabata here in, here in Houston, of course, because it's a wonderful sushi fish. So it was kind of just about making the connection because the thing probably should have said this at the beginning, but, but that's kind of the great strength. One of the great strengths of the Gulf of Mexico is that we don't have a lot of things here that we only have here and nowhere else. The vast overwhelming majority of all the fin fish species in the Gulf, they're found in a lot of other places. And so they've tend to have been fished in at least some of those places. And in a few of those places, they've developed reputations as being, edible in some way, highly edible, highly prized, what have you. So that was kind of how it, how it went. And then once you got the chefs interested and the general public that was the, you know, that was being exposed to those fish by the chefs they went to, then there you go. You bring up an interesting point. Um, one is that there's a lot of fish that have multiple names and that creates a level of confusion. And then there's a lot of fish species around the world and the Gulf is no, uh, exception that have unfortunate names. Um, 
And sometimes <laughs> it just takes a little bit of rebranding to convince people. I mean, no one wanted to eat a Patagonian toothfish, uh, but we changed it to Chilean sea bass, and now it's uh, incredibly popular. Uh, well, the, 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 the orange roughy wouldn't have been what it was if everyone called it a slime head. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, oh. I agree. Yeah, that's but the, and, and, and again, we, it's a it's a it's an easy way to make the connection. And, and to be clear, I had the whatever success we had with this fish, the greatest success was in Houston. And I, I suspect that part of that had to do with the fact that kind of uh, and, and, and we said it in the book. That, that Houston itself is cosmopolitan, just like the, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is cosmopolitan. There's people from everywhere in Houston and there's, there's, there, there tends to be kind of a, an understood diversity in what people eat about that. I want to come back to for a second to uh, your mention of the Mediterranean. It, you know, you've had a circuitous route to what you're doing today uh, that started in the restaurant industry. Um, Tell us a little bit about the journey from Austin to France to Thailand uh, to being uh, one of the uh, you know, Bon Appetit's top 10 restaurants finalists in, in Houston. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um, I was going to be a high school teacher, so I was studying history and English at the University of Texas, and then I uh, fell into a restaurant job, and then I kind of forgot about teaching and all that. And I started working in restaurants around Austin in late late nineties, and then one restaurant I worked at uh, that I I believe hasn't existed for a few years now called Aquarelle. <clears throat> the chef there, Jacques, uh, had hooked me up with a um, a position in France, which uh, and so I in, in Aix en Provence, which is a few kilometers from from Marseille. Uh, so I was there for the little over a year not all that time spent at the restaurant uh you know it's going over as a um as a stage and then continuing in some ambiguous way is a is a difficult thing to manage over a long period of time so uh after about a year i uh, moved to thailand um uh, well first came came back to the united states and sold everything i had and then got the money to move to thailand um, uh, and then, uh, my original reason for moving to Thailand kind of stopped being my, my reason for moving there. And then, uh, I moved to Chiang Mai and I met Apple, uh, about four or five weeks after, uh, after I moved to Thailand and that was it. Spent three years there in the Northern part of the country in Chiang Mai. Uh, I, I actually for, for once was able to use the, uh, my English degree. I was, I managed a language school for a while there, but then I was uh, executive chef at a little boutique resort about 45 minutes from the, uh, the border with Myanmar in Chiang Rai, the, the northernmost province. Uh, and then I came back to Chiang Mai, Apple and I got married, our, our son was born, and then uh, eventually found our way back to the States and uh, fell into fishmongering because because I caught a couple of fish with my dad. And for the first time in my life, I paid attention to the Gulf of Mexico. No kidding. That's, that's why it happened. Well, in that process, you, you met your wife, uh, who is your co-author on the book. Um, and, uh, in, in, 
the book uh, has a, a really strong influence of Thai and, and Asian cooking in the recipes, uh, which makes it all the more interesting because it's uh, preparations that people, many people would be unfamiliar with. Yeah, absolutely. The um, apple is where apple is from, specifically in the province of Udantani in the northeastern part of Thailand. If you look at a map, there's no ocean nearby. But uh, obviously, um, uh, there are a, a great many rivers uh, that are that 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 do exist at any rate during the wet during, during the rainy season. Uh, there's a an abundance of, well, I guess it's not seafood because it's all freshwater, um, but it's uh, fish, crustaceans, uh, etc. And so, kind of ap apple grew up in a farming community, and uh, she was real familiar with all that kind of stuff growing up to the point where it was just uh, quotidian to say the least. And so then, when we started messing with fish here, totally different kinds of fish from totally different kinds of waters, but. Uh, Apple's kind of the, not only the, the, the best person I ever met and the smartest person I ever met, but she is definitely the most naturally talented cook I ever met. Um, and so she would, you know, she, she was the one that was always grabbing things out of the cooler and like, ah, we're going to eat this tonight. Uh, and we, we ate a, a hell of a lot of things that it might've taken me a very, very long time to get around to. I might never got, have gotten around to eating some of them. <laughs> And Apple just kind of went to town, figured out right away. And what are we eating? Ah, uh, this is that thing that you couldn't sell and you didn't really know what to do with. No shit. So uh, that, and she did that all the time. That was a common thing. That that was that didn't just happen occasionally. Yeah, I love that. I love the description in the book uh, about the the uh, number of times that it was a seafood dinner because there was you know X number of hundreds of pounds that you weren't able to sell that week and you didn't want to waste. Yeah. Uh, so I, I love the, uh, the ingenuity involved in some of the, some of the recipes that were probably driven by demand of, of not wanting to waste that product. Well, because what, what else are you going to do if you can't get anyone to buy it? And we sold, we did not buy things and keep an inventory. We had no place to keep an inventory. Uh, everything we did had to be sold that, day essentially and whatever was not sold uh was fast on its way to becoming a problem uh we had nowhere to get rid of fish we had nowhere to sell it on the cheap so uh there were times when we had a chest freezer just cram packed with fish not often but it happened a couple of times uh you you also cover quite a bit in the book um some preservation techniques, um, for seafood, which is not something a lot of people think about. Um, you want to tell us one of your favorite recipes that involves curing or preservation of seafood? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, it's because, well, we were talking about white shrimp bycatch, uh, earlier. And, and I had said that one of the things that you will always find in white shrimp bycatch is little fish, uh, let's say little species of uh, little sand trouts and silver trouts and small grunts and small croakers and all these things. Um, this is definitely one of those things that I never would have thought about, but that Apple kind of finds amusing that I find so awesome. Uh, 
is, um, and I can't remember what fish we, we talk about in the book uh, with this recipe, but it's it's called when you, that Diao fish, which I, I my, my Thai pronunciation's always been terrible. So I apologize to speakers in, in the audience. Um, but it's, it means one day or one sun kind of fish. Uh, so what it's, a, it's a half dried product. And so you split, you spatchcock the fish. So you, you split it down the, down the back uh, and then take the guts out, take the backbone out. And then basically you have just a, a flat, flat fish with all the skin exposed on one side and all the flesh exposed on the other. Uh, marinate it in some soy sauce and garlic or anything like that. And then dry it in the sun for a day. And that's it. It's not, it's not supposed to be like jerky. It's not supposed to be hard. It just gets dehydrated enough to be shelf stable for a few days. And then when you want to eat it, you just deep fry it in a wok. And it turns any little fish that might otherwise be awkward into something hmm. amazing. Doesn't matter what the fish is. Yeah, there's a number of incredible umami rich recipes in there. I, I love that you took on, uh, uh, even took on the the making of fish sauce, um, with the caveat that you should be careful <laughs> if you have roommates or anyone who is not going to be able to take the smell. Uh, yeah, we we had had friends who lived out in the country, and that's why we were able to. The the one time that we did an actual a batch that yielded gallons uh, was at was was way out in the country where no one cared, and it didn't. It's not it's not terrible unless you get very close to it, and it's not even terrible. Well, uh, I'm at the point where I don't think any fish smells terrible, so maybe I'm not the, <laughs> the best judge of that. But it's not that bad uh, until you open it up, and when you open it up, it's still not bad, but it can be jarring unless you're prepared for it. And of course, if it spills or there's a leak, or if, if too many flies get inside, get attracted to it, that's going to cause problems for anyone who is around you. <laughs> well, the final product is amazing. You know, the process of getting there is something that some people can't stand, but uh, the final product of fish sauce is an incredible thing to use in cooking. Um, I want to take a quick break uh, so we can recognize our sponsors for the show. Uh, but when we come back, I want to pick up uh, and ask your advice on on, uh, on on some of the methodologies for killing your catch in order to uh, get maximum uh, freshness out of it. We'll be back in just a moment. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. 
Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, we're back. Um, so PJ, where we left off, I wanted to, you have this section of the book that I think is really fascinating and that a lot of, it, a lot of recreational fishermen like myself out there wouldn't have even thought about this. And it's that your, your instinct when you're fishing is to pull a boat or pull a fish in the boat, unhook it and throw it live into an ice chest, uh, you know, half full of water. Um, and, and you have an entire section of the book talking about why that's a bad idea. Will you walk us through that? Sure. Uh, I, first, I think the reason why we naturally think to do fish like that partially is because, uh, a dying fish does not look like a dying land animal. It just kind of, uh, looks like it's hungry or something. That's it. Um, and so it's easy for us to, to throw it in the cooler without thinking about it beyond that. Um, but, but more than just that there, you know, it, it occurred to people, well, okay, let me, let me, let me backtrack on that. I'm sorry. If, uh, if you're going to kill a land animal, uh, any bird, any, any mammal or whatever for meat, there are, are certain things you, you, you want to do when you're killing the animal and there's certain things you, you never do. Some of those things you never do are for reasons that are just being a, trying to conduct a humane slaughter. Uh, other things you, you never do or because you'll sacrifice a great deal of quality. And so why not apply those same kind of principles to fish? Now, obviously, I, I'm not the first one to think of this. Uh, it's the, the, the point really is, is that for some reason, that's never been adopted on a wide scale in the United States. Um, I am told by, by Japanese friends that that is, that, is the, that is the Japanese recreational standard for killing fish, much less the, the commercial standard, which always dictates, uh, let's say, swift dispatch, if nothing else, uh, rather than, than, than what is done kind of typically in commercial and recreational fisheries in the U.S. And it's not, you know, it's nothing, it's the kind of the, uh, the buzz on the, the standard technique is ekgma, which involves spiking the brain. And while that we do that with every fish we catch, certainly, um, it's important to remember that there are real tangible benefits and and real tangible reasons to be doing it. It's not uh, there's nothing exotic about it. So first of all, there's no point in just letting an animal die slowly. That just doesn't make any sense. Um, again, you wouldn't do that to a land animal. Just, oh, look at that thing slowly suffering. Um, fish do feel pain. That's kind of an unequivocal statement. Uh, and so dispatching a fish quickly is, is first of all, a humane act. But beyond that, um, just like you're not going to just bash a chicken over the head, and I'm not trying to be graphic, but but it's the point, and then just let it die and then eventually just kind of pluck it and that kind of thing or or just cook it with the feathers on and the guts in 
it, none of that makes any sense because you, you have to bleed out the animal. You have to do certain things. And if you don't, you're going to end up with a piece of meat that is going to be edible for a short period of time, but that's it. And it won't be what it, it won't taste like what it should be like, like, like what it should, like what it should taste like. So, um, so that's kind of the, 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 the reason for doing all this. And it's real simple what it involves. This not all fish are killed the same way, but the most important thing is you deactivate the brain and, and, or, the, or, or the part of the brain at any rate that can send signals to the rest of the body. For some fish that, that might involve, if nothing else, a club over the um, to the head, which is not ideal, but that's, that's better than nothing. Uh, done the right way, that, that fish is rendered... Uh, kind of uh, unconscious, I guess is what you would call it, for forever. That part of its brain is destroyed. But the uh, the preferred way and the most obvious way for for me, the most humane way is a spike to the head. They make spikes for this. It's easy to make your own spike for this. And once you figure out how to do it, the fish does very, very specific things when you spike it the right way. And it's a very easy technique to learn. It's just as easy to learn how to bleed the fish out and uh then you just then you throw it in that 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 ice water and like that you're going you you end up with better quality fish on the day on that day that you've caught it but you also end up with fish that you can eat really like two or three weeks later if you take care of it and you don't get that when you just throw a fish into a cooler and it slowly dies or you gut a fish while it's alive and then just throw it into a bucket of ice or into a slush for a few minutes that you, you don't get the same quality of product it's impossible one of the other things that you recommend uh for protecting freshness is actually mixing salt water with your your ice slurry in your chest on the boat or, or, or on land where you're fishing I, I wouldn't have thought of that either what's what's the reasoning behind that um okay i was first told uh by a japanese colleague that i used to work with that fish should never that saltwater fish should never be in kind of sustained contact with freshwater. Uh, now, I don't know. Well, that seems like that might just be something that is done because it's done. However, if you put salt water does seem to, it doesn't seem to salt water protects the fish better against the, against the, against the chilling process. If you have fresh water and fresh ice, uh, fresh water ice, I guess. Um, you put the fish in there, it's going to chill just the same. It'll chill real quick. But after, if you leave the fish in just a little too long, when you pull the fish out, the eyes are going to be cloudy already. Now, I know that's just some boring, there's a boring reason for that. And I know it doesn't mean a hell of a lot, but if you leave it in too long, it seems like uh, some of that, that protective slime gets washed off easier in fresh water. And, and I, 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 I do not have anything scientific to base this on. Absolutely not. Just a, a hell of a lot of observation over the years. Whereas saltwater slurry, uh, it seems to kind of allow that, that real thin coating of slime to stay on the fish, which is important. You want that. It doesn't mess up the, uh, the gills. It doesn't mess up the eyes. It keeps the fish more aesthetically pleasing for sure. But, but that's the reason why. I, I don't I don't have anything beyond just hmm. it is surprising the difference if you do the two side by side. I mean anyone can do this. 
You could catch two fish and do them the same way. And if you leave the fish in the freshwater too long and it's a saltwater fish, you'll, you'll see a difference. Hmm. It's interesting. I wanted to move to a, a heavier topic for a minute. I, I really appreciated that in the beginning of the book, you make um, a clear nod um, to the indigenous peoples who occupied the Gulf Coast first, um, you know, generally under the umbrella of, uh, of the Karankawas. Um, and it really struck me because obviously we are having a national dialogue right now about the intersection of race and, um, you know, it, it just, it's not something that I think we think about a lot is what, what is the full history behind seafood and the things that we love about the Gulf coast and how some of that may have been whitewashed. Um, and I think you probably would come to it with even more perspective being in a, you know, a biracial marriage and with your kids. I wonder if you could just take a minute and talk a little bit about why you took the time to make that note and that point in the book. Gotcha. First, uh, I, and this may be kind of a, I don't know, an example of what you're, you're talking about in your question. You're the first person that has ever mentioned that since the publication of the book to me. Uh, no one else has talked about that at all. And I know it was only a, a page or two. I'm, I'm aware of that. But, but to me, that was, I don't know. I was hoping someone would want to talk about that. Uh, and, and to be honest, that was a real difficult, that was, a that was absolutely the hardest part of the book because the book was to be, and again, I, I said in the beginning, it was done in, in very conscious kind of imitation of Alan Davidson's style, because those books that he wrote about North Atlantic, Mediterranean and Southeast Asian seafood are just, they're, they're, they're joys to read. That's it. The man loved his fish and it's plain in his writing that he did. Um, that's why they're, they're so good. And that's what we wanted to bring that, that, that same kind of love and passion to the fish where, where we're from. Uh, however, um, I, I thought from the very beginning of even start when we started writing the book that I really hoped that eventually someone would, would be foolish enough to give us another book deal where that would be, <laughs> where where it would not be about this is a good fish to eat, but it would be about exactly what you're talking about. The that is all something that is, yeah. You say whitewashed, and that doesn't even begin to encompass it. I don't think. I mean, it's just it's so much. There, there's an absolute denial of, uh of the existence of anything before, I don't know, the 20th century, it, it get talking about Texas fisheries, for example, um, and the absolute denial of the <laughs> huge, gigantic chunks of Texas history in the 20th century. Uh, and it's things that are never, you know, it's almost like it's, that's like you don't talk about politics and religion. That's like that all rolled up in one it's a, it's a uh, third rail, whatever you want to call it. You don't talk about that stuff. And the thing is, I say 20th century, it's not like it stopped. Um, I, uh, I met a crabber in 2011 who was, uh, 
maybe my age. I'm 44 now, so in his early 30s. Maybe he was a little younger than me. Definitely not older than me. He was proud of the fact he was a white crabber. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that um, where they live, they had kept the Vietnamese people on their side of the bay, and the Vietnamese people wouldn't dare build anything on the on the the white side of the bay. He did not use the word Vietnamese, um, and uh, that that was in 2011. Talking to someone younger than me, or my age, right? That's again not ancient history. Even I know where we started talking about about the the, the peoples that had been here, you know, for for the longest. Um, and I I, I want to go back to that in a moment, but but you ask you know about the the larger subject, and it's something that we we never covered adequately throughout the book anywhere. And, and I, that was painful, but in, intentional because, uh, I was really trying to write one specific kind of book and maybe, maybe in retrospect, it shouldn't have been that way. I, I kind of, that's actually the one thing about that. I'm really not that I'm uncomfortable with about the book right now, um, is that didn't gloss things over, but didn't talk about some things. And that, that wasn't, yeah, like I said, that, 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 I, that I consider to be a, a shortcoming in the book in the end. And, uh, hopefully have a chance to redress that eventually one day circling back to the, uh, the first peoples here on the Gulf coast. That is kind of a, I really felt like I gave that just not what it deserved to be honest. Um, Unfortunately, there's not, there's, we don't today living humans don't know very much about those peoples at all, as far as I'm aware, um, to the point where the scattered evidence makes it kind of not looks almost contradictory sometimes on some things, which it's obviously not. We just haven't seen the picture yet. Um, and it's kind of, a to me that, uh, you know, that's a, a wealth, uh, a wealth. That's a, that's a, that's a inappropriate and inadequate word to use. Not, not wealth. I, I, I can't think of the word to use for it. Imagine, for example, um, that, uh, all the various peoples who lived on the, on, on throughout the, the Northwest go, uh, coast of what is now the United States. Uh, imagine if, Imagine that kind of knowledge, uh, but about Texas, about where we live now. That kind of knowledge was just lost, right? And uh, it's humbling to think that, man, it doesn't matter how clever I think I've ever been with anything, or even as amazing as Apple is, how clever she's ever been about anything. Those people would have, uh, you know, the, the things they would have considered quotidian, I guess. Uh, I, I, I can't even begin to imagine what it might be, how, the, the, the knowledge that, that must have existed then. Uh, that, that also translates not just to peoples who long, long gone victims of, of genocide. That, that refers to also, that, that, that statement is appropriate to uh, a lot of communities that were thriving, are, are surviving today along the Gulf Coast as well. That same kind of a notion of uh, um, 
as an example, I, one time we got the Atlantic brief squid off of a, a white shrimp boat. And that's a really awesome little bitty, tiny, tiny, tiny squid that doesn't get very big. And chefs love that kind of stuff. And I was so proud of us. And I was, ah, oh, this is great. And uh, we were living at, at that time in, in the, well, I think they call it New Chinatown part of Houston, uh, the Southwest. And uh, I was so happy with it. And there were some chefs that were so proud of it when they got a hold of it. And I was proud of these squid and chefs were proud of these squid. Look what we're bringing to the market for the first time. And then, of course, Apple just goes to a shop nearby that she always went to. And lo and behold, they have those same exact squid and they are already cooked and they're prepared food. They're ready to go. And they were local squid because they were not gutted and it was Atlantic brief squid. I mean, it was already quotidian. We just, just because I didn't know about it didn't mean it, it, it didn't already exist. And I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things in the book that, that, uh, that kind of veer towards that, that kind of area. Well, I think that's one of the, as part of the, hopefully the dialogue that, people are having all over the country right now is realizing that in many ways, a lot of us have been in our own bubble about a variety of issues um, and experiences of other people. Um, while I'm in California now, by coincidence, I actually grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, and when I was a kid, I went to a Boy Scout camp on Lake Corpus Christi uh, called Camp Karankawa. Um and there was a, a nod to the history of the, of the first peoples along the Gulf Coast, but it was also tainted with lots of imagery of, you know, about cannibalism and savagery and sort of the usual Europe, you know, Anglo-European narrative that was disparaging. Well, and look, I mean, even the, the, the I, 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 I hope we, we mentioned this in the book that even that, that name, I mean, Karanka was, you know, it was described certainly not as, a, as what the, those peoples called themselves or that, not, not even those, yeah, those peoples. It wasn't one, one people. It was a loosely affiliated kind of, uh, let's say, probably linguistically related people, something like that. Um, but they, they apparently didn't call themselves Karankawa. Uh, that was, and that's the thing. We, we don't even, don't even know that. Um, I, and I know we can't change that, that, that dreadful kind of reality. Um, but damn, I, I would really think that that at the very least, right at the very, very, very absolute least, uh, that should not, not just that, but that, that among, among other things should certainly, uh, really force us to really kind of re-examine all of it, like you had said. And that um, when I say us, I certainly mean those of us who have had the privilege of not having to examine those things in the past. Right. Right. That's, that's who I mean when I say us, to be clear. Uh, and that's a, um, you know, uh, the, the sooner that, that we, and that's the same we, uh, get serious about that, then the sooner that, that actual progress towards a better tomorrow can start. And until then we're just, uh, you know, the, uh, just, just playing in the band on the Titanic until then. And we need to recognize that. And yeah. I think that slowly, but surely there's, uh, with all it's sometimes hard to feel this way, but 
Um, it seems like that uh, there are occasional glimmers that uh, that we are starting to do that. Uh, and now I starting, right? That's a, a real long road. And that's a road with real consequences, not, not just, not just performative gestures, but, but actual consequences. Um, and I honestly, I, like, that's a, I, I, I can't tell you what it, what a dream it would be if, um, if we could afford for, for me to not have to do anything, but write another book and then someone hopefully publish it. I, I did, I'm not a historian, but that is kind of, I, I did receive the preliminary training, let's say. Um, and I, there is such an, the history of everything we know about, we think we know about our state is, is obviously just a, uh, <laughs> a fraction of reality from a very specific point of view, let's say. Uh, but the same holds true, of course, for what, what the Texas coast is, what Texas seafood is, all of it. Uh, communities that, you know, again, not just were affected by events of the past, but continue to be, uh, you know, affected by policies of the present. Let's say that. And I'd like that to be the, the next, the, the next book, if there ever was one. Well, hopefully there's a publisher out there who would see the value of a body of work that, and, and especially through the lens of food, which is a, you know, gives, makes things more accessible and more approachable and in, in having hard conversations with people. Um, I think so. Yeah. Speaking of food, I, I, I want to go back to, to a couple of the, the kind of the ethic of the book, right. You know, highlighting underutilized species, but also fully utilizing whatever you, whatever you do harvest. Cause you made the point earlier, if you're, if you're going to harvest an animal, then you need to use it. Um, and, and there's a lot of recipes in the book. Um, you know, there's a lot of whole fish recipes. There's a lot of of non-traditional uses of fish, um, you know, parts that, you know, some, a, a recreational angler standing on the dock uh, at Hampton's Landing in Aransas Pass, Texas, is probably going to fillet a redfish and then throw the carcass in the water for the pelicans, which is going to leave, you know, 45, 50% of the yield, um, you know, to waste. Um, and, and I love some of the, some of those recipes and, and there's, there's fish in here that an average angler on a charter boat or a recreational angler is probably going to throw back. Um, you, you have a entire section about hardhead catfish and gaff tops, um, which I thought was fascinating because <laughs> I am totally guilty of throwing a lot of hardheads back. Um, and also getting a hardhead, you know, fin right in my shin before, uh, give us your, your I got one in my, uh, took our I'm, I'm sorry continue and then i'll tell you about my barb story which is good yeah yeah no problem yeah they hurt they hurt like hell uh i was gonna ask you to give us your favorite hardhead catfish uh recipe okay yeah uh okay first to, to the the barb story i i've gotten barbs in lots of places uh last time mike took took our son camping overnight at a beach recently and we got lucky that there wasn't well, we could stay isolated by ourselves and not have to come into contact with other humans, which I'm not sure is possible right now at the beaches because people are, I don't know, not heeding reality as we were talking about reality earlier. But um, we caught a, 
our son Jay caught a little hardhead, and I can't remember where it got me first, but I think it got me in the finger first, and it was a small little guy. And I was like, ah, well, that's no good. And then I only had one hand free, and it ended up getting me about four inches above my belly button, which is the worst place yet I've gotten a hardhead barb. So um, as far as the hardheads and, and, and gaff tops go, that's just kind of one of those... Uh, that's an example of one of those fish that no one's ever gonna, no one's ever gonna get excited about. I don't think uh, it's easy to get excited about, let's say a, a freshwater channel catfish or a blue catfish that's from kind of real nice flowing waters or something. That's a good fish. Everyone gets excited about that. Gaff tops and hardheads aren't like that. Um, apparently, people have been catching them though, because, and I hadn't noticed this a few years earlier, but in recently in the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife recreational uh, regulations on the uh, the limits, there's actually a minimum size now for, for hardheads. And there wasn't before, as far as I recall, which leads me to, I mean, obviously conclude that people are catching them in enough numbers that they need to establish a minimum size. So, uh, so but the thing is, I, and I think we put it in the book like this, that at least somewhere in the book that if you're even if it's a real bad fishing day and you can't catch anything else it's like you're gonna catch at least some hardheads or stingrays at the very least and stingray has a limited kind of an appeal and you shouldn't catch too many of those but i mean hardheads or gaff tops sure um and usually if nothing else is biting then the, the hardheads that are biting are going to be larger now uh so anyway as far as like the recipe to use that's uh, I think that's the, the one we even used in the recipe was lap, which is the uh, I think it we the recipe in the book used either the gaff top or the hardhead, I believe. And all that is is like a uh, from it's a, from from where apples from in the part of part of Thailand called Isan, the uh, salad more or less called lap. And it's minced uh, or very small pieces of whatever kind of protein. Uh, or sometimes some kind of vegetable and it's it's mixed with shallots and lime leaves i'm sorry not lime leaves i that don't they're not lime leaves i'm gonna sound like an idiot and uh mint leaves cilantro culantro there's ground uh, toasted rice and ground chilies and and fish sauce and it's 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 extremely addictive and it's spicy and sour and it's wonderful and you can use i know we said in the book that you can use any kind of fish or seafood in the book in lap you can use just about any meat in the world for lap and it will always taste good and it's also something that everybody can kind of dig in at the same time and you don't have to mess with uh cleaning a hard head really which is can be a thankless task unless it's a real big fish so that's 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 the fail safe, certainly for that fish. If not, if they're big enough, they do grill very nicely. And then again, you don't have to cut them or you just have to gut them. So either way, can't go wrong with either one of those. And there's, there's another one I love in the, uh, I love in the book, uh, that I wanted to talk through with you. Uh, it's Bonito, um, which, which in the Gulf is definitely considered a trash fish. I remember fishing on head boats out of Port Aransas when I was a kid, um, you know, and they, they would throw the Bonito back because the, 
the the flesh is so dark and they have such a strong bloodline um, and and the ta- and a strong taste to them and you have a recipe where literally in the title of the recipe is carefully decomposed ah <laughs> uh, okay well okay now now I, I, I if I'm I possibly should have had a copy of the book in front of me right now but if I recall correctly that was Benito with an O yes yes. Okay, great. Well, now there's 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 two different fish. There's Benito with an O, which is Sarda Sarda, and then there's Benita with an A, which is the fish that everyone thinks is a trash fish that is super 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 red uh, to the to almost like purple red, um, and the one that everyone says is a trash fish. So um, the Benito with an O is. Um, that is actually a pretty esteemed fish in other parts of the world. Uh, I've, I know it's kind of a big deal in like uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, Turkey, for example. I think it's a big deal there. I know it's used in Japan. Uh, and that was the one that was, that was one of the, my favorite things we ever did with fish and we've never been able to do it again. And I have no idea how we did it. And we just let it rot without letting it rot too much uh i I don't even remember how it i think in the uh in in the recipe it was kind of i salted it and forgot it for for a few days which is true but i'm not even sure why i was salting it i'm not even sure what my plans were for it i just kind of my suspicion is it was very late at night and i was tired and i couldn't sleep and this was the last goddamn fish in the cooler and i got mad at it that's that's my suspicion and then I just threw it in salt. And then a few days later, Apple gently reminds me that there's a fish in salt stinking up the garage. And it's way too hot for that, for that to be happening right now. Um, and so we, we just, we let it dry. Uh, like I said in the book, it doesn't, it didn't, flies didn't, flies were very interested in it, but they didn't want to stay on it. And they certainly couldn't find uh anything to eat or any good place to lay their eggs. So nothing really bothered it. And then it just kind of kept losing water. And uh, a few months later, we, uh, we cut it down. And then actually I didn't put in the book, but uh, Andrew Zimmern was going to be at our house filming a segment for the Houston episode of bizarre foods. Mm-hmm. And that had happened like right that that bonito that was the the carefully decomposed was it had been ready for a couple of weeks but we didn't do it for that reason it was just there and so we were thinking what the hell are we going to do with this i don't know it you know it's just oh, okay but i mean it might be something and so we ended up just kind of throwing something together that miraculously was amazing to eat but we did like accept the fact that there was an outside chance that all three of us were going to get sick from eating whatever we had allowed to decompose for at that point, like five months and uh, happily it didn't, it came out tasting like uh, in the book, we say it was like gorgonzola made with anchovies. Well, you, you add into that kind of lime leaves and galanga and coconut milk and lots of chili and some sugar (laughs) and Lots of fish sauce and some tamarind juice. And it was, uh, man, it was something. I, I don't, 
I'm not even sure if it was good or not. It was just so interesting. <laughs> I don't think that Andrew Zimmern, he couldn't have appreciated it because he didn't know the odyssey of that damn fish from when we got a hold of it to what he was eating there. But we acted like it was like, oh, yeah, we do this shit all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is normal. So. Well, you must have impressed him because he ended up writing one of the reviews for the book. Uh, <laughs> there's a great quote from Andrew Zimmern, uh, who is an incredible guy and one of my mentors. He says, quote, the recipes are superb and the food is glorious, but the bigger message is one that is vital to the national discourse. Our planet is in the midst of a global food and climate crisis. Eating locally, cooking less popular species of smaller fish, and broadening our vision of what seafood on our plate looks like is a lasting legacy that Texas seafood one, makes it Texas seafood one of the most important cookbooks of this or any year. That is high praise from somebody <laughs> like Andrew Zimmer. He uh, he's he's a very nice guy. He is. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, and that, those of you that got scared by that last story. Uh, the vast majority of the recipes don't involve carefully decomposing anything. No, uh, really, they, uh, and they they don't. And the, the, I I do want to say also that the vast not not the vast majority, but none of those recipes were written for chefs or professionals in any way. Um, some of them were written by chefs, but there were some that were way too ornate that were written by chefs that we ended up not using. But by and large, they're relatively simple things to do, and it's just for anyone it's not for professionals you don't there's no hopefully no large amount of expertise required for most of it yeah i i, I agree the, the recipes are very accessible um you don't have to have culinary training um and those of you who are recreational fishing or just in a restaurant that's got interesting things on the menu uh it's a it's an incredible collection of of how to's, uh, on, on species of fish that you normally wouldn't have seen or may have even avoided. Um, I, I think it's an incredible book. Um, I really appreciate your time, uh, talking to us about it today. Thanks, man. Tell everybody, tell our, tell our listeners, um, uh, how they can, how they can find the book. Uh, well, I would certainly, I, I would say suggest, uh, first going to the U university of Texas press website and, uh, Oh, that's probably something real easy like utpress.edu or something like that. But unfortunately, I don't have that. It, it's a utexaspress.com. There you go. All right. Uh, that, I would I would love it if, it, if people would, would, would be supporting the publisher that way. If not, it is available on, a, let's say, most kind of large book selling formats on the Internet. And again, the, the full title of the book is Texas Seafood, a cookbook and comprehensive guide by PJ Stoops and Apple Sremar Stoops, uh, an, an incredible work. Thank you so much for your time to talk us through. It's not just a cookbook. It is, a, it is an ethic about cooking um, and, and, a, and an important statement on how to preserve our food system, our seafood system. Um, and, and I really appreciate you putting it out there and taking the time to talk to us about it. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Seafoodie with Chef PJ Stoops. To find additional episodes, go to coastalnewstoday.com or wherever you normally download your podcasts. We also appreciate you spreading the word to your fellow seafood aficionados. Until next time, to quote today's 
book, Texas Seafood. I wish you great Taiwanese-style salt and pepper oysters with crispy basil and Rainbow Runner Gravelox. Have a good one.